This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. What will it take to heal the historic divide between white Europeans and people of African descent? What it takes is telling the story, not erasure. So we're far away from, from healing. We can't heal until we know what happened. As a, as a black person, you refrain from telling how you're feeling what you feel for fear sometimes of, of hurting uh, your white allies, if you would. tuned to Imperial Voice. Hello, this is In Our City. Uh, I'm William Heath. And I'm Tosin Onileri. And today, Tosin and I are off to the British Museum, virtually, to hear a lecture by Olivet Otele. Yes, we are going to be listening to a conversation between Olivet Otele and Bonnie Greer on um, Otele's new book, African Europeans. So I've never spoken to either. I know Olivet Otele was a Professor at Bath Spa University, and then she got sort of headhunted, didn't she, to Bristol? I didn't, you know, I only found that out just at the beginning of this lecture. But anyway, we're going to dive straight in. Let's it dive in. So, so we'll drive, there's been an interruption, but now we're going straight live, more or less, to the British Museum for Olivet Otelli and Bonnie Greer. Here we go. Good afternoon, and welcome all of you to a talk that I'm, I just... I, I excited is not even the, the description, but it, it, it's part of what I feel uh, in having this talk with Olivet and to talk about her, her new book. And book is, is, is what it is, but it's much more than that. And I hope we can get to, to show you that. It's called African Europeans and Untold History. Now, I have to tell you, Olivet, something is probably quite bizarre. I, I, re, I began reading the book backwards. I, I, you know, I don't quite know. Oh, oh, forgot to tell you all out there. There will be 15 minutes uh, Q&A at the end. So have your questions ready. Uh, ask what you like, because that's what this conversation is about. And that's what the era of reclamation is about. Um, so I'll, I'll, as I was saying, I was reading this book backwards. And I don't even know why I did that. But I'm glad I did. I found my name in it. Now, you know, I, I'm, not only, I'm, I'm only saying that because the title of the book is African Europeans. And I was born on the south side of Chicago. I mean, I've lived here half my life, but I, I thought I'm, I'm not a European. Um, and then I realized as I went through the book that this is a provocation that you've made. It's not just a title. It's a provocation, it's a challenge, it's a dare. Can you tell me about what that title means? Yes, I certainly can. Thank you so much, um, Harvick and the British Museum uh, for inviting me. And of course, I'm excited and, and you know, completely honored and, and humbled 
uh, to be talking with you, Bonnie. Uh, before we even start, um, you have fantastic arts behind you. What is this? Oh, this is, uh, this is a piece by the British-Nigerian artist, uh, Lanwe Ologoke. This is, I think it's kind of me. Now, I didn't do, I didn't do this on purpose. It's only because I, I like talking in his, in his studio. It gives me a lot of energy. I like being around uh, artists of African descent. And I got lots of books, but I, I want it to be here. I want his work to be around. I can understand why, because it's absolutely um, outstanding pieces of work. Well done to him. So about your, um, the title, yeah, it is a provocation because it's really about several strands that I have been examining over the last, you know, 20 years or so. And it was really hard for me to bring them together. And then, um, and, I, and then I decided that, you know, why not go for it? And then uh, if it doesn't make sense to people, well, tough, because it does make sense to me. It's about identity. And it's about, you know, trying to shift our perception of what identity is. And yes, you're in the book because, oh, I'm not European. Well, actually, yes, you are. You don't want to admit it, but it's a sense of home. It's the idea of home. Home is where many things are. Home is not necessarily where we say it is. It's where um, our heart is. It's where our experiences, some of our experiences made us, uh, transformed us, uh, are. So um, I see you as an African-European, sorry. <laughs> you, you know, you, we're, we're going to get into you defining this because um, it, it, you, you actually invented this in many ways. And so, so what I want to take our, our viewers through is that journey inside of you because this is, this is not only superb research. This is, this is another way of thinking. So I, I want to start with um, the Kushite Empire and the Kingdom of Kush yeah. and Strabo and the, the, the Kandaki Queens and, and yeah. the beautiful Marrowhead that's at the British Museum, which people, if you want to talk about statue toppling, you need to tell that story because that's the ultimate statue topple. <laughs> yes, it's, I wanted to put so much in this book and um, the obvious place for me was really to start with um, a research done, you know, decades ago um, by uh, Shikanta Diop, you know, when he was saying he was looking at the, uh, the origins of Africa and how he actually started a, a fierce controversy about um, kind of a, a culture uh, African culture and, and the, uh, the density of African culture and um, not just the density, but he wanted to trouble the way Europeans were perceiving uh, uh, African culture and Af African history. And he is somebody, he did his studies at the Sorbonne, just like myself, and he's somebody who really, really greatly influenced me. Shikanta Diop was a historian and um, there's a university named after him in Dakar in Senegal. And he was somebody who was um, looking at the, uh, the borders, the fluidity of borders. And when I started this journey, I, I, I see myself in as, as an African-European. Um, so it was about telling to the world, this is who I am, and this is the many pieces that I am. And, and that journey was born out of um, experiences. I was born in Cameroon, and I grew up in Paris. And I live in the UK and all these experiences have shaped who I am because identity is constantly shifting. 
despite what everyone wants to believe. It's not just where you're born. It's whatever you become as you grow old. So yeah, that's a provocation. One of the many provocations of, of this book, really. What's so fascinating about you, you know, sort of beginning with, with this, the marrow head mm-hmm. and uh, that great top of the head of Caesar Augustus that the, one of the Kandaki queens actually toppled and then buried so that the people actually walked on this guy's head. I mean, it's at the British Museum, you should see it, it's amazing. And this was a black woman. This yeah. was a woman, and, and what's so amazing about Africa, for me in Africa, is the strength of matrilineal, of the matriarchal, of matrilineal power of, you know, you can look at Egypt and see all this sort of svelte beauty of Egypt. And then you go on the other side, you go to what is now Sudan, in the Kushite mm-hmm. Empire, you see another thing. And I'm always amazed in this era, and still now, mm. with the agency that women have yeah. in African culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved talking about this, this story as well, because um, the Kandaka were um, the mothers, supposedly the mothers of the king. In other How words, are we talking about, uh, Olivette? What year are we talking The Meroe. For example, yes. the queens uh, of Kushite, they were supposed to be the mothers of the queens, in other words, the secondary role. But in fact, they had the power. They're the one who protected the, uh, the kingdom. Military uh, strategy was decided by them, and these women were powerful. So what is interesting, what was interesting for me is that, uh, of course, specialists and experts know that story. But it was about a perception of what black women were at the time that has been completely forgotten. So it's the power of that story that completely amazed me. And I had to bring it, um, bring it about uh, again to life because you and I have been having this long conversation about, you know, women, black women in these societies and how we make our way, we find our ways, um, and how we navigate different, different, um, different tides, really, in, in ways that sometimes are, are seen as either too mild or too provocative or too aggressive, but always, always in keeping of what we believe to be the ultimate. In other words, we see the prize, we see the ending before everyone um, see, sees it. I don't know. It makes, it makes sense to me. I, I, you know, I completely, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up as well is what you, you demonstrate at the beginning of the book, which I think is so important in black history, so important, is the agency, the equality of Africa and Europe. That there was a moment in time when they faced each other like this. It wasn't this, it wasn't this, it was this. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't any question uh, about that in a very interesting way. So the, 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 the queens become the symbol of that that equality and and i want to move into the so-called european middle ages because that's really fascinating as well i've had the privilege of seeing uh saint morris at magdeburg in in germany and i was not prepared for him um i was in the cathedral i was doing some filming and they said oh you have to go see saint morris and i i was okay I went over and I saw this black man. And I, I want to stress that because yeah. it was not an idealized of, uh, image of a black man, um, the, the, the bust. and the, It was an African face. This was somebody who had studied 
and looked at an African face and decided this was beautiful. He wasn't idealized. He wasn't eroticized. He wasn't, he was, he made me, he looked like my brother. He was beautiful. And so I became really interested in what was the African presence to the European medieval mind. I've also seen uh, several black Madonnas, including mm -hmm. the one that's in England, Walsingham. And I've seen uh, the black Madonna in, in, in Krakow and the ones in the south of France. And you have to, as a person of African descent, stand back and think, what's going on here? What's, what's happening here? Yeah, absolutely. Again, we have, um, they're like signs that are not in incredibly highlighted in European history, um, that the, the one that we taught. But actually, these are powerful, powerful symbols of a past. So St. Maurice, just to give you a background, St. Maurice was born in what is nowadays Egypt, the Thebes region, and he was a soldier. And he was a soldier who was working uh, in the Roman Empire. And um, he became a master because he disobeyed, uh, he didn't disobey orders, but he, he refused to, um, to pray to the god Jupiter before battle. Anyway, he was executed with uh, his companions. And that symbol of St. Maurice became a sign of resistance religious resistance. Um, he was Christianized, his myth was Christianized. And the, the legend, he became a legend as well, traveled across countries to reach what is nowadays Germany. And he, in throughout that journey, he was transformed as a Christian hero. So his blackness was a symbol of uh, the power of redemption, power of European, um, European, well, the Roman the Magi too, in a sense, as well. Pardon? As it was the Magi as well. The, the exactly. So he he reaches across um, across the board. So the Madonnas have the same transformation. They're everywhere because they are truly part of African and European history. So what is what was interesting for me is to see how uh, we talked about the question of erasure, right? How this part of story of the story has been completely forgotten. So you have a statue, a beautiful statue, that is not necessarily contextualized. And they don't tell you, they certainly don't tell you that this was an African-European because he, they were both, uh, both were uh, figures of uh, European history and religious history as well. So yeah, I, I'm fascinated by them as well. You know, one of the things that, you know, you talk about uh, forgetting, what you demonstrate in the book and what you prove and you show is that there's a moment, and I use, well, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to the first Medici Duke, which, I, you know, was always a controversy about whether he was a man of African descent, the Medici, and of course now you lay out the story of, 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 of the founder of this great dynasty, uh, the rulers practically of Italy uh, during the Middle Ages, and huge, huge patrons of art, uh, uh, huge, huge uh, story of Europe in, in a medieval time, Medici, and this began with a man whose mother uh, was of African descent in, in yeah. Italy. So, so we have this land, we have this, this, this Europe as a place where Africans are there. And I, I would suppose not so much to say equal and equal, equal, but they were not, they were not others in a sense. They, in fact, actually, you could say that the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Empire, 
use the African presence as sort of advertisements for their kind of worldwide, you know, superiority. So that yeah. if you could get a guy from Ethiopia to be part of you, then we were like the big deals, you know. So it was never ever um, uh, a sense of, of of black people being sort of inferior. But what what is interesting and and what you really kind of made clear to me for the first time. People use the term the fall of Constantinople. And mm-hmm. suddenly you read this in history, you study history, and you have an image in your mind, and there's Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Actually, the fall of Constantinople was the beginning of what we understand as Europe, which technically, the fall of Constantinople demonstrates that Europe is what I call a super peninsula, that it in fact is not a continent, Hmm. It is a piece of Asia. And the fall of Constantinople ushers in something very different, particularly for people of African descent. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah, it's the beginning of um, kind of a sedimentation or, 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 or um, hardening of hope, if you would. It's the time when Europeans, uh, as we know them today, are starting to delineate their borders in terms of not just uh, geographic borders, but uh, intellectual and religious borders uh, by saying that we are different. This is where we sit. This is where we are. Whereas before that, you know, the Muslim world had black, you know, black African sub-Saharan people, uh, in fact, quite a long time, way a long time before anybody else, meaning uh, Europeans. And this is also the time when uh, Christianity or Christendom becomes... Um, the be-all and end-all. It becomes a place of, um, uh, of myth, uh, a, a place where you think race in turn as we see it today. It becomes a place of redefining intellect, European intellectual uh, journey. Whereas, you know, the journey has always been there, but they rewrite uh, European history at that moment. I and mean, it has not ceased since then. Um, so you have them and us starting to form in a way that is more um, set, um, I have to say. What is also interesting is that you have to, you start having as well, um, 15th century, roughly, medieval, you start having a definition of um, terms like the Saracen, the Moors, and all the rest of it as insults, um, as, you know, uh, the Muslim world being seen as inferior because they, they, they venerate or rather they follow the followers of Muhammad. Um, whereas on the other side in the Muslim world, Christians are just Christians. They might be the enemy in terms of, uh, you know, power, military, but they're not necessarily inferior. There's no uh, derogatory meaning attached to it. And that for me was really interesting because anybody else then, south of uh, these places becomes um, the unknown. Yes. That was known before that. Yes. It's a rewriting of history, really. You, you know, what you've also laid clear for me, so a theory that I've always kind of had, and you've, you've, you've laid it out in this book beautifully. We don't talk a lot about the Reconquista. The, 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 we don't talk about it. We don't talk about... Um, you know, as an American, I get Isabel and Ferdinand, you know, was, you know, they sent out Columbus and all that, but we don't really get what they did and how they, in fact, 
in the in the in the reconquest and it means the reconquest of spain from islam and they began to actually have degrees of who was christian who was jewish Mm -hmm. and that began to apply to people of african descent as well and something happened yeah and that and was clear it's clear and we never ever go to that moment when europe as you say europe becomes this bulwark this continent when it isn't it suddenly becomes this thing that is a defense and i think it's when color begins to really come in yeah absolutely i mean the muslim world has its own um uh, you know definition of color what's and the gradation and the hierarchy and all that but what's in what is interesting to me is you know with uh, the period of uh, the reconquista is that they don't just kick the muslims out of what they see as europe they define who is european color wise in other words you have this uh, position of different um different identities for example the moriscos were muslims who have uh well who who stayed uh in spain and portugal in the iberian peninsula and these people are going to start you know will be ostracized massacred by number if they refuse first of all to um um uh, how do you say to change religion to uh, convert yeah if they refuse to convert they become the enemy they they seen as inferior from that moment on you have the jewish community that has been ostracized by uh, all of them you know, that is also classified as inferior and then you have people who are of african descent kind of sub sahara or north africa or, or who have darker skin who are also seen as inferior even even though they christians so you have different uh, different cat- categories that are put in place being europeans in the mind ideologically meant being christian and being white of 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 white skin if you would whiter skin because um spain uh, uh the population of of spain also had a different gradation but so yeah you see that being put in place and you know isabella and ferdinand coming together it's really two superpowers and two ideologies meeting and deciding to become an empire and it worked because then they were able to fund different um you know different voyages that later on went uh, on to the conquest of um uh, the americas if you would uh, ruthlessly so so the so the concept of negro and you and you talk about that yes. um you talk about because on my birth certificate is the word negro um and my generation is the one that decided we weren't going to be negroes anymore um and so this word this term can you talk about it because it it yeah. it exists still uh yes. in the unconscious in europe very much oh yeah it does and and it, it you know negre in french is supposed to be an insult except when he's a uh, sangor saying it you know but anyway that's a different conversation let's go yeah. back to the term negro that starts by meaning black as in a black person but little by little instead of black person negro becomes slave or enslaved person and then uh, and those two become interchangeable you don't say a black person anymore over a black person could have been um uh, uh free a free person but in people's mind it becomes really set as well as an identity so negro becomes 
a category, an identity that is actually put on people. Nobody decides to, to call themselves Negro. It's the, con uh, the, the conquerors. It's um, the colonial powers who decide that this is going to be how it is. And it starts with the, Portu well, the Sp Spanish, Portuguese, and then um, uh, the Dutch um, ha have the same term. I think it's Negrin or Negern, rather. Yes, yes. The same, the same term. And then the French choose um, Negre. And the British, um, it, it, the British is even more interesting because they have Negro, but they also have Nigger. So they're playing with those both terms um, uh, as an insult or, or not. But, you know, there's always this ambiguity that exists and, and we all know why it, it is there, you know. Um, Oliver, do you know, I, one of the things that is so groundbreaking about, um, about African Europeans um, is that you almost present the African, a person of African descent, as kind of the duel between Europe as these, as these nation states begin to define themselves. In fact, the Africa, Africa itself, but particularly the African body, becomes mm -hmm. the kind of fence in which these countries, Spain, England, France, Germany, Italy, are de and Portugal are defining themselves in relation to themselves. So that as, as a result, and of course when the slave trade is, is discovered, when that is, is seen as, as, an, as, a, as a way to, to enhance these nation states, mm -hmm. the African begins to become a commodity, yeah. a thing. The African is, a, is so many things. He is or she is a commodity and she's something else, a currency. She is a currency, I say she, but they are currencies. They are reproductive tools. They are labor. And above all, in terms of identity, they are the, the, the one that help Europe present itself as evolve, as intellectually, intellectually uh, superior. A few years ago, I wrote um, um, an edited, well, I co-edited co co a volume, and I chose the title, Does, does Discrimination Shape Identity? Yes, it does, because you construct your identity in opposition to the other. In some cases, that's what Europe, exactly what Europe that did. Um, yeah. And that, 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 I think, is one of the sort of revolutionary things that you show, is that the pawn that we, we still are. I mean, in fact, it's, it's Europe defines itself, and European states define itself against us, against the, the relationship with us, and Africa becomes the big us. So yeah. when we, you and I first met, uh, which was you know, mind-blowing to me, it, your study of, of, of Agore, of, of the Sangar, all of that, and that bridge between real African Europeans in a classical sense. Can you talk about those, those women? Because this is something yeah. that we don't talk a lot about in black history and we need to because yeah. these relationships were key. Yeah, I really think so. And I think that before we even start, I just wanted to say that just imagine we are in 17th, 18th century and then 19th century. 
colonial spaces have been defined by uh, uh, economic power from Europe, from uh, by Europeans. They hold the power. They are the conquerors in a way. And then you have African coast, and in African coast, they still met with um, different communities, different groups that they have to negotiate with to actually acquire labor and African captives and food and other stuff. Okay, so they're going to European traders and sailors and, and, and all these people are going to settle there, build forts and have children with uh, African women. And in Senegal, those women, those children are called the women ones, the female ones are called the signar. And the signar are going to become a whole category on their own. The African European, but I chose to call them European African just to reverse a bit, just to make a different distinction, because they are both European in the sense that they adopt Catholicism. Um, they are completely immersed in the trade with, with Europe. They order their cloth and all this stuff from uh, Nantes, Bordeaux, La Rochelle, Lisbon, Seville, European, you know, they're cosmopolitan in a way. Um, but at the same time, these women are really embedded in their uh, communities because uh, Senegal majority, vast majority Muslim. These women are Catholic, but actually they are also as, um, animist in many other ways. Uh, so they're traders. They trade in gold and when uh, they trade in human beings. And when it doesn't work anymore, they trade in rubber. And when it doesn't work anymore, they reinvent themselves and become healers. In other words, going back to Africanity and their African roots. It's a question of survival. Um, you know, when you do a history, you try not to put, um, you, you, try, you think, oh, they were actually slave traders. Yes, they were. They were slave traders and they were survivors in this environment of 18th century where um, the, the, the most important commodity uh, was human, um, human labor, captivity and human African captives. So listening to those stories, uh, listening, rather um, learning about these stories was very important for me to also point out that African Europeans are a complex group. Um, you know, it's not a good versus bad. It's a whole lot of people who are born out of different really incredible experiences. And then on the other side, on the Dutch, nowadays Ghana, you have the Ga women. Ga women uh, were same kind of... Um, same kind of uh, upbringing, if you would. But the difference between Senegal and the Ga women in Ghana is that the Ga women in Ghana have some form of agency, some form of power limited to that region. Whereas the Signar were economically powerful. They were, as I said, you know, they became, they were um, um, in politics. Their children were in politics. They owned land. Um, they made the decision. And in fact, at some point you have uh, Europeans, young Europeans, white, male, coming to Senegal to try and marry these women because they were part of some form of aristocracy uh, in the 18th century and 19th century. Yeah, they, they're powerful women. The story of women surviving in different environments is quite interesting for me to look at as well. Dear listeners, stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Hello, you're still tuned to Imperial Voice in our city and we're listening to Bonnie Greer and Olivette Otelli talking about her latest book. Isn't it great? Let's get back to it. You, you know, I, I want to jump out of the historical trajectory for a second because you, you hit on something that is important. 
And partly what the era of reclamation curation is about, it's about reclaiming um, not only history, but memory. And you are an archivist of memory. You're, you're an historian of memory. And of course, the erasure of memory is the supreme task of colonialization and enslavement, is to erase our memory. One of the things that, 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 that we're looking at, and you, and, and, and you, as well as part of the project, is how, and I'm going to use the word impose, and it's not a good word, but I want to use it because I can't think of another, how politics imposes. Um, my generation, and my generation is the 60s generation, the Black Panther generation, the story you just told, we didn't want to know that, okay? We didn't want to know that there were Black people who were complicit in the transatlantic slave trade. And I'm going to use that word in a broad sense. We don't want yeah. that in there. When yeah. I went to tell Mina and figured out that something else was going on here besides white people going up because they couldn't, they couldn't have taken it. That was a huge shock to me and it's really changed my life. So I want you to talk a little bit about how politics impinges in a sense. Yeah, for me, you know, many people disagree and I understand what they're coming from, but for me, history is politics. Uh, and politics, you make your history, when, especially when you're in power. So we, you know, we as people are uncomfortable with certain truths. Certain truths, historically we are, we have documents, you know, you can't evade that, it happened, this is how it is. So it, in, in the African continent, you had a variety of forms of captivity and subjugation. Some were servants, some weren't. Some could redeem their, you know, could buy their, their freedom, some couldn't. Some were, came from families that were born into uh, enslavement. In other words, their parents, their grandparents, their ancestors are coming from a line of, serv of, um, of servants who would work for the monarchs and serve the monarch as, as a family you know, as a descent. And we still have the legacy of that today in certain countries. Um, and this is what my research um, that was funded by the European Union was about. It was about the legacies of the past in post-slavery society. We know about Europe, but there is a legacy of the past in post-slavery society, Senegal, Cameroon, uh, Ethiopia, um, Mauritius, and all that. So that was part of the research. And when I started looking at archival material there, I, find, I found so many stories that I couldn't put in the book. And those stories were all the jigsaw, you know, all the participation and, 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 and all the people and especially families who, who are in power um, still today and who were the descendants of those um, powerful families who sold uh, uh, African captives. So we, we don't like ambiguity and complexity because the other side of the story is so big. And in fact, um, you know, if you talk about the transatlantic slave trade in terms of the whole history of the world and of, of African people is yesterday. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're very much, because the drama of it, because yeah. so many of us are descended from it, it's linked, it's so, and we can't kind of look beyond the, the kind of complexity. Yeah, of it is very painful. And I have, I just, I just wanted to say something. So it's not just powerful kingdoms selling people who are working for them. 
It's also the dislocation and dismantling of, of families. In other words, I heard, I heard that all my life, I heard it in the Caribbean, I heard it in the States, I heard it in France, when you have people who know that um, uh, I was born in Cameroon saying, you sold us. And my answer as a historian is all, I listen because it's coming from a place of pain. But I have to say as a historian, try and imagine members of the same family, some being sold and some staying. What happened to those who stayed? A lot happened to them. It's also part of my research. And we need to, t to tell those stories, the stories of those who stayed as well, because there were, their life was completely transformed, a whole, a whole shift completely changed. So we need, we need to talk about that as well. Yeah, complexity makes people uncomfortable, but we are human, so it comes with a, with a territory, isn't it? It, it does. And, and because we are not in control yet of our story, of our names in many ways, it's certainly not my name, um, we, there is always a kind of, of, of trying to set as much as we can, especially you, the younger generations, to set the narrative as much as possible. Because then within the narrative, you can at least begin to breathe a little bit and, and to tell stories. Mm -hmm. I, I, wanted you, I want you very much to talk about, um, one of the things that I am um, sort of concerned about as an African-American, as a person who was mm -hmm. born in Chicago, is that, I consider the ubiquity of African-American discourse on the whole uh, uh, of the black world, particularly the younger the generation has become. Mm -hmm. uh, even the term Black Lives Matter is utterly an American term. We, we all know what it means. We all agree with it, but it's as American as apple pie. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, some woman walking down the street in Paris going Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, I know what it means, but it's so American. And, and that, in fact, it, it becomes a kind of polarization in which people don't realize how Americanized mm -hmm. the whole of the movement and, and languages. And you push back against this in a chapter that I need you to explain to people. Because in France, you, you, you call yourself a, a l'enfant de la République. I said it in rhetorical French, but... This, this idea of French, of France's looking at color is completely the opposite in many ways of how we think it is because our trope is African-American, Black, British. France is a different story. And some of the things that happened in France, particularly with the women, uh, with, with, with the feminists there, I, I need you to tell that story and how France yeah. is yeah you know france is based on color blindness we 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 all became french uh 1848 abolition of um, uh, slavery in france and then we're all french uh people particularly people from the, the caribbean region and all that so it, it's about the republic define itself as colorblind in other words um we are supposed to be all equal and the the question of race is really something that is troubling so if you go through the the, the journey of race, then you find inequality and you find history and an ugly history, history of conquest, conquest, conquest and subjugation. So we don't go there, but racism exists. You know, it's a reality for most of us. Uh, it was, at least for me, growing up in, in, in Paris for many, many uh, decades. 
Um, so how do you go on about it? You can't address racism as such because it, it's not supposed to exist. Um, uh, so you have a group of young women, and I'm, I'm incredibly um, humbled by them. They're amazing. Generation. My generation, we compromised much more. Mine too. Much, much more. They are uncompromising. They walk with their truth. And in terms of the black, the Afro-feminists, in terms of the Black Lives Matter, they don't take the, the, the movement as it is from the States. They actually use the movement to tell their own story. So it could be any, anybody else. It could be another movement. Other movements will come, but specifically for France, different for the British though, specifically for France, it's like another opportunity to fight and to tag along a powerful movement to say this is very specific to France. We would not put up with this. So they, they're black, um, they, 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 they're French, not necessarily just Europeans, yes. specifically French, and they claim their Frenchness. They're not French from uh, so-and-so origin. They're French, you know. Um, some of them are Muslim, some aren't. And all this needs to be encompassed and understood as part of their identity. And of course, there's a pushback because when you become peculiar and singular, there's a singularity to them, then the ideal of the Republic is we're all together, we're all the same. It becomes troubling and therefore there's a, there was and there still is a pushback against uh, Afro-feminists in, uh, in France. Uh, but that fight doesn't stop that, though, you know. So, so you, so we, when we do our language, when we talk about this, we take Anglo-American, uh, and we take Anglo-American discourse, um, Anglo-American uh, uh, point of view, which is actually about a liberal state. I mean, we as you know, Anglo Anglo-Americans, British, Black British, we're we're declaring our part in the state. We are we are in it. We're in it. We're defining ourselves. We're in it. Whereas if you go to to to, to France, Germany, Spain, uh, uh, Holland, the Netherlands, Sweden, this is another other other story because, yeah. in a sense, what Moisy did. Which, which, you know, was a stunning. They basically, in, in France, of course, you have the whole idea of the Simone de Beauvoir feminist. Oh, we're all the same. Everybody's a woman. You know, we all suffer, la, la, la. And these young women were saying, no, we're not all the same. We're, we're proud to say we're not all the same. Not only that, we're going to make a space where we can say it and you can't come. And so it becomes yeah. the opposite in many ways. Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of, of, of general idea of what we understand about it. And that's why I mean about the ubiquity of, I guess, British American discourse in this. In this yeah. I find it fascinating as well because these women are saying, um, you know, you haven't been able to include us in the feminist movement. And typically, the Me Too movement is, is a particular, it's a very revealing example. Me Too movement in France started in the U.S. by an African-American woman. That's right. And it's, it was mostly represented by white women. Right. You know, and, and, and nobody saw the problem with that, with the fact that very few black women were actually involved in that movement because, you know, feminism is supposed to be, represent everybody, but they didn't notice that black women weren't there. So these women are saying, you didn't notice, well, we're going to create our own spaces. And you can't come because in those spaces, we are able to share and talk about the pain that 
you know, the daily microaggression, but also the deep pain that exists. Because when you are in multicultural spaces, black and white spaces, if you would, you, as, a, as a black person, you refrain from telling how you feel and what you feel for fear sometimes of, of hurting uh, your white allies, if you would. So you can't completely unload or, or, or the burden onto those spaces. And that was the reason why they created those spaces. And it was perceived as discrimination. This is interesting. That, that's kind of what I mean by this idea of African-European and how why your book is so important because you take us out of what I call the, the, the American-British trope of assuming that we know what this is, assuming that we know what blackness is in relation to European states. And when you're in a country, when you're in France, when you're in Sweden, where it's just like, oh, we're all the same. In fact, in, in French law, that's true. So mm -hmm. you, you, you suddenly, French women, French women of African descent who walk out of that are saying, no, it's not true. We have to separate ourselves. We have to show you this because it's, it's not yeah. true. We don't yeah. want to be included because no, the, inclusion is false. the inclusion is false. The inclusion yeah, not that way. And I have just, just one thing I have to say, that, you know, Sweden, um, Denmark and other places in the Netherlands have this, you know, they're struggling with the same kind of things. But what is interesting for me is that they are able to connect with other Europeans. Something I, I've, you know, the UK is looking up to the Americas and Europe is just next door. And exactly. That troubles me too. It troubles me deeply and it, and it worries me uh, uh, as, as I've lived here half my life. And um, I can see both sides of this. Partly it's social media, the ubiquity of social media. Um, and, and, and people grab slogans, they grab things, seeing a murder like the murder of George Floyd. Anybody, anybody, any decent human being would, would get involved in fighting that as best they can and what's created. But the assumption within the whole of this arc of blackness is that it's the same thing is not true. And, and this is what African Europeans, that's what I mean by the provocation. Because yeah. in you putting me in there as someone born you know, in America, is the provocation of saying, I want you to look at these two words. Don't think you know what it is. Don't think you know what it means. It's not only about a position on the continent, it's about a mind. It's about yeah. how you see the world. We have one more minute before we go to questions. And I, I, Olivia, what do you want to say? Because I, I, I have a feeling you, why did you do this book? What made you do it? It's a personal journey. It's me as a child of, um, of both worlds growing up um, and seeing what I saw and not seeing the boundaries that have been imposed upon us us as in, as in um, African Europeans, um, uh, people of African descent, European, you know, I don't see those boundaries. They're there, of course, uh, geographically in terms of, you know, passport IGs and all that, but this is not what I see. This is not my uh, deepest reality. My emotional reality is not there. So I needed to say that by showing it was not always there, historically speaking. It's also about my children who are, you know, they, they're Cameroonian, they, they're French, they're British, and specifically they're Welsh. 
And they have identities from all these countries, but it's just a piece of paper, but it's also an, an emotional, strong emotional connection with all these spaces that, um, you know. So I wanted to say that we don't have to be just one thing. And, and even what we are now evolves, and that's okay. Gerald, who works in the area of late antique Egypt and early Christianity, asked, asked this question. That was a Chicago accent, asked. Do you think it's important for more Black people to do research in the area of late antiquity? Thank you for that, Gerald. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, please, 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 please. I mean, I can, I can never express how much it is important. These are spaces that, um, you know, talking to students, black students they believe they don't have anything to do with you know it has nothing to do with them it does you take up the space you want to take not what the space people have been allocating you so please do yeah wholeheartedly go for it gerald okay next uh this is to both of us okay what what is your opinion on taking down statues of figures associated with the transatlantic slave trade? If that wasn't, if that question didn't make it in, I would have been really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Um, I'm going to answer both ways. The historian in me loves to see the relics of the past preserved somewhere like a museum. The activist in me is saying, we're not talking about just any statue. If we're talking about Colston, that conversation had been taking place for decades. And the young generation, Generation Z, decided that enough talking, this is time for action. And they did it. And I was <gasps> gasping, me who's been writing, researching, and fighting for this. I was gasping because I wasn't, they didn't ask me. They decided to do it. I was just, I would just say that we have to be careful though about venerating the statues rather than the, the history of people associated with that, those statues. So that's what I, I would say, yeah. Your turn, Bonnie. I would say that um, I agree with you. The historian and me would say, don't take them down because there will be a time, and I've lived long enough to say this, there'll be a time when people didn't think they existed. They won't believe you that they were there or, or what they are. So it's always best to teach, extend the story, because all of these stories are big, they're hidden, and we need statues sometimes to talk about. I mean, this country is full of what I call Victorian tat, basically. All these statues and these public spaces, what the heck? You know, so taking down a statue is a political act. It is what people felt they needed to do. But I, I want people not to forget that statue was there and to understand why that statue was there, which yeah. is much more important than the statue. So take the thing down and put it in a museum of ugliness or whatever you want to do and teach people that's what it's in there for or recontextualize the, the statue or the bus. Put it amongst the things that it created so that people can learn so that it doesn't happen again. And that's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. What will it take? This is William. What will it take to heal the historic divide between white Europeans and people of African descent? Ah, what it takes is telling the story, not erasure. Erasure creates not just an easiness, but pain. That's why I'm also working on memory. 
it creates pain and uh, dislocation and sense of um, worthlessness. So if we're completely honest, as much as we can, telling those stories, using archives if we want to, but also using the memories of those um, whose ancestors were, were you know, the, the stories transmitted by the ancestors through oral history. I think that's the only way. We're still grappling with, oh, we shouldn't tell that story, you know, uh, and we should uh, celebrate so-and-so instead of so-and-so. We're still at that point where we're not even telling the story um, as, as, as it happened and as, um, you know, as um, archives are telling us. So we're far away from, from healing. We can't heal until we know what happened. Can I ask you a question about memory? Because you are a historian of memory, of, of, of slavery, and, and, and a curator of memory. I want to ask it very quickly. I feel very strongly that as the, as the descendant of enslaved people, and particularly in America, we were told we were nothing. We had no history. For me, an African statue, even in the Western Museum, even in the Global North, gives me memory. Now, I, you know, I know how they got there. I know the whole story. And, but I, I see my face. And, and is there a place for that kind of exchange, that kind of curation, particularly for the descendants of enslaved people? Of course there is. This is, this is what, um, what matters to me as well. It's finding those spaces that talk to us, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm a, you know, I was born in Cameroon and I hear the story about um, artifacts being stolen and my first instinct is, oh, they should restore them. We have to remember that I also, just like you, um, I, I, well, you grew up in, in Chicago and you see your face in there. As a child, as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old actually, I saw my, my, my history represented in the Musée de... African de l'Océanie, which is a horrible, horrible museum, but that was the very first time uh, Af African artifacts were uh, presented as majestic, as noble, as worth writing about. So there are spaces where we need to find, we need to have that dialogue, that painful dialogue about what to do for people who are, belong to, to several worlds at the same time. How do you present their story uh, within those spaces they're living in? So yeah, I completely understand, um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be polarized when we have our opinion um, uh, on the matter. It's a dialogue, you know, a painful one. It's very painful. It's a very painful passage. Um, this is the last question we can take. Mm -hmm. How far can white people teach black history? I love this. White people with a small w. But how can far how far can white people teach black history without falling into the trap of white splaining? How can we use white privilege to amplify these histories without centering on whiteness? We've got four whitenesses in here. So do you, do you get this question? Yeah, that's okay. a lot of uh, what, what is it saying? What is it saying? Basically, I don't know if I'm understanding correctly. Mm -hmm. two, two, two aspects. Can white people teach black history? How far can white far? people teach black history without falling? into the trap of white-splaining. You know, white-splaining. Okay, how can we use white, these are two questions. Okay, let's do the white-splaining first. Okay, white-splaining is, you know, following the trap of paternalism. Uh, I'm gonna tell you how you suffered and all the rest of it. 
uh, that it's a trap. And I, I know many people who are well-meaning who fall into the, that trap. I think the way to go forward is to give the space, even when you're teaching, to people of African descent, either as narrator, as, um, um, as presenter, and giving them that space where you step back, you teach, but you step back and you let the voices speak too. So it's a collaborative thing going on there. Um, the second part was what? I want to ask you, because he uses whiteness a lot in this question. What is whiteness? Oh, no, you want to start a new lecture. I know, and it's almost over. It's a whole discipline, you know that. It's a whole yes. discipline. Yes. It's an institution um, that is based on, um, on the privileges, if you would, associated with a color. And that is a historical uh, privileges associated, historical, emotional, associated over time with a color. Uh, it comes with a color, um, but it's not just a color. <laughs> the credo as well. The point of we're going to have to stop because okay. I want to do my praise song of you. So I'm okay. ending by saying thank you very much, Professor Olivero Tele, Professor of the History of the Memory of Enslavement at Bristol, Vice President of the Royal Historic Host Society, first Black woman to be made a full professor of history in this country. And you are also an enfant de la République and of Africa too. Merci beaucoup. And I, you know, um, your presence is a blessing. Uh, thank, you. Thank, you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for African you. Europeans. It is a mighty book. Thank you uh, for British Museum. Thank all of you who listened to us. And uh, this is the era of reclamation and Akan Drum Talk, and we'll be back next month, and Olivet will be back as well. She's one of my Supremes. <laughs> Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. And Encountering African Europeans will give you a story that you think you know. You actually may be convinced that you know. You'll find out. You don't know this one. Missy, thank you, Olivet. Thank you very much. So, William, what did you think about that? Wow, it's completely different. I mean, I felt incredibly challenged and comfortable at the same time. I think, I mean, I think neither of those two women would give an inch of ground. They know their stuff so well. But they're so calm, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say that um, I didn't have, I think we, we, we were talking through this, I didn't have any aha moment, but I learned new historical kind of data. I mean, yeah. the Sudanese women completely blew my mind. Yeah. I had no idea of their existence. Yeah. Yeah, we'll discuss this in more detail next week. I think we need a proper discussion about this. Yes, it was, it, it was wonderful. And that's the tone that our conversations should have in our city and stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Thank you and goodbye until next week. Until next time. Yep. I think I heard him say, boom shaka. <laughs> <laughs>